Let's pray. God, we just sang, you are all to us. And we believe that. We believe that to be true. But I don't always feel that. And as we were just reminded that just because I don't feel it doesn't mean it isn't true. And I don't always live like that. But that doesn't mean that it isn't true. You are all to us. That apart from you, I have nothing. That everything I have that is of any value is because of you. And so, Father, I pray that as we open your word, that it would do for us what we need for it to do. And that is to make that which we sing and believe to be true as we leave here changed, transformed by the power of your word. We pray this for your glory, for Christ's reward, and by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. When we lived up in Chicago, there was a pastor who uh, shared an illustration with us, and I have never forgotten it. I, I can't turn down a good illustration or analogy, as those who know me. Uh, and since I have preached a few times, that has only become more and more powerful uh, as I have done so. Uh, he said this, he said, the job of the preacher-teacher is like that of a waiter or server. His job is to get the food out of the kitchen and to the table, spilling as little as possible. That is the job. And since uh, I have preached uh, a few times and have been a server in college at a restaurant, in fact, I would recommend, this is me speaking, not the Lord, that everybody should serve at some point in a restaurant, whether it be fast food or fine dining. I think everybody should serve because it's a great job. No, no, because it is not a great job. It is hard. It is hard to do. But if you do so, when you go out to eat and you get good service, you appreciate it all the more. And in that same way, since having preached, I appreciate Matt Volwinkel. I appreciate Stephen Schultz and Chris Fritz and Tom Greenslade and Fritz Good and others who have preached. This is hard. But I appreciate all the more those who do it so well. And I thank God for that. The, one of the men who trained me to be a server was at a restaurant. And he said, people go out to eat for three reasons. And you ain't one of them. <laughs> they go out because they're hungry for good food. They are hungry for good fellowship of spending time with family and friends. And they go out for the experience of having somebody else Serve them. That it is a thing of honor for somebody else to come in and take care of them. And with that, it reminded me of something that Chris preached, a a verse that he just referenced a few weeks ago, that there are three types of people that their analogy of being in the Word, being here, hearing a sermon, is is something we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 14, 
where we're encouraged to admonish the idle, to encourage those who are faint-hearted, and to help those who are weak. Now, those are three things we don't like to think about ourselves. Idle, faint-hearted, or fearful, and weak. But those are the ones whom Paul is saying are going to be served. And so during this message, you, you will be hopefully either motivated, that is admonished, because the Holy Spirit knows you need to be motivated in an area, or you will be encouraged because you may be fearful of something, that the Holy Spirit knows you need to be encouraged, or you will need to be helped, strengthened, because there's an area where you may be weak. Which one of those? I'm not going to determine which you need. The Holy Spirit will. As his word is preached, we know that it always accomplishes its purpose. It never returns back void. And so in that way, today, I don't see my role so much as a server. Today, I see myself more as the busboy. I'm just setting the table. And what do I mean by that? If you look at our passage, our main passage for today is Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be preaching on verses 3 through 4, but look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, For this very reason, make every... That should be every on your handout, by the way. Um, autocorrect is auto-incorrect. It says even. Make every effort to... Okay, that's next week. That's the message coming next week, which my brother Matt is going to be preaching. For this very reason. For what very reason? For what you're about to hear today, make every effort to... We referred to that, and I've, I've mentioned this before. That is the moral imperative. Make every effort to do this because of the redemptive indicative, what Christ has already done in verses 3 through 4. And so I'm not your server. I'm just setting the table. I have nothing for you to do today. There is no imperatives in verses 3 through 4. You don't have to decide what you're going to order today. You just, I'm, I'm just setting the table, and then the server will be with you shortly. All right, but come back next week because it's a seven-course meal and you don't want to miss dessert. It is going to be great. Uh, the main point then, therefore, of this message is this. In God Jesus, our Lord, what Stephen preached last week, one imperative mentioned, God Jesus, our Lord, we already have everything we need. That's today, verses 3 through 4. To be all that he created us to be in him, verses 5 through 7. And so that is the message, and I hope it will encourage you in that or motivate or strengthen you. And not just in what I say, but also how I say it. Normally I use a lot of visuals, right? Uh, animations and QR codes and all of that. But I'm hoping that you would be encouraged because just as I think everybody should be a server, the writer of Hebrews says everybody should be a teacher. He says, by now, all of you should be teaching. Does that mean you're going to have to get up here and, and, and teach to, to this many? N no, not necessarily. But young person, student, could you be teaching someone? Invite someone out to lunch and, and go to the student center and say, hey, can I show you what God has been teaching me? Can, can you maybe meet with a coworker and say, hey, let's start a Bible study on Thursdays every week and just open the Word and just read it and just say, what, what does it say? Maybe you can start a small group or something. You can do something because 
God the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews to say, by now all of you should be teachers. So I want to do this in a way that I, if I'm going to say that you already have everything you need, then I want to use just the very things that I know that we all have. We have the Word of God, and we have God the Holy Spirit who inspired these words in us. And I'm going to use just that. And hopefully, hopefully that will be enough. And so that is the main point that we are looking at today. Our main scripture is, as, as mentioned, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. And in it, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own excellence and glory, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Those are our verses, our main course that we are going to to be uh, digging into. I hope you came hungry. Two verses, four points. Here are the points. You see them on your handout. You don't have to fill in the blank. They're already there. We're going to look at his power, his calling, his promises, and his purpose. They come right out of the verses. Those are the four points. And if you watch the Super Bowl commercials this past Sunday, and in between there was a game going on, you may have noticed there was two commercials. That was He Gets Us, right, the He Gets Us campaign. And if by that they're referring to Hebrews 14, verse 15, that says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our time of weakness, but was tempted in every way as we are, then yeah, absolutely, he gets us. But what does the rest of the verse say? But was without sin. He gets us, but he ain't like us. And praise God for that. For we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But one, we have a high priest who never sinned. And so not only does he get us, but he empowers us. He has effectually called us. He has fulfilled every promise to us. And He has given us an ultimate purpose. That is the Jesus whom we get to worship this day. So let's look at point number one, His power. And on your handout, you just see the words of that verse. And you can just write all of your notes that you want to along the side there. We're going to look at first, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His. Whose power? It's His power. Whenever you're reading in Scripture and you get a pronoun, is who is that? Just go back a verse usually and you'll find out who it is. It'll mention them by name. And we don't have to go back very far. The, the end of verse 2. Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, our Lord. It is His power. Not mine. His what? His divine power. It's talking about His divinity. That He is the second person of the triune God, of the Godhead, His divinity, His divine power. For this, we're going to look at four specific ways that God's power, uh, specifically Jesus Christ, is demonstrated. First, we're going to look at His creation power. And for this, we're going to do a lot of turning. We're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17. And in it, it says, For by Him... Okay, well, again, who's the Him? Just go back... The very end of verse 15, it says, The firstborn of all creation. That's a title used of Jesus Christ, not of Adam. And we know this because at the end of verse 13, it says, His beloved Son. 
His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. For by Him, Jesus Christ, all things were created. There we go. Jesus Christ created all things by Him. And just in case you're wondering, is that all things mean all things? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, not only by him, verse 16, but now also through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're going to look at that hold together a little bit more. And he is the head of the body, the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We're going to look at now his sustaining power. His creation power, but now his sustaining power. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. And it says, But in the last days, he, who's the he here? It's God. If you look at verse 1, God has spoken to our fathers. He, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Not only did Jesus create all things, he gets it in the end. He created it for himself. He is the heir of all things goes on to say, through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We're going to talk about nature a little bit later. Hang on to that. Put that in your pocket. And he, here it is, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's that phrase in the middle, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did Christ create everything, but he has this power to uphold it. He is not the divine watchmaker who just made the watch and just steps back and says, I hope it keeps running. Not according to scripture. It says he upholds it. That word upholds is the idea of carrying, like a backpack, carrying it and to a specific destination. But it also has the idea of sustaining, support to validate. And so it means that Christ is sustaining, maintaining it. By the power of his word, or the word of his power, this is his healing power. Why do I say that? Do you remember in Luke uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, when the centurion wanted his servant healed, and, and Jesus was coming and was about to enter his house, the centurion went out and said, no, do, do not come in. You are an honorable Jew. I do not want you to defile yourself by coming into my house, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. How could he say that? Because he knew that Jesus had the power to make any illness go away. That every disease, every molecule, every there is no rogue virus in the world that does not obey the Lord Jesus Christ. He upholds everything by the power of his word. That is his sustaining power. His, his creation power, his healing power. Now let's look at his resurrection power. Turn to Ephesians 1. Verses 19 through 20. Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 20. And it says this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? We're going to find out who the his is here in just a second. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. So we know that this isn't Christ. It is actually God the Father that is mentioned actually up above in verse 17 the Father of glory, that he worked in Christ when? When he raised him, 
Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That right hand is the place of power and authority. They would sit at the right hand. But it says, well, that sounds like it was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. It was. But Acts 2.24 says that God raised Jesus from the dead. Just generic God. Not generic God, but God doesn't tell us specifically which part of the Godhead. It says God raised Jesus from the dead in Acts 2.24. Here we see it was God the Father. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says that he was crucified in the flesh, but raised in or by the Spirit. That it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And then in John 2, verse 19, he says this. Jesus says, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it up on the third day. Jesus himself predicts he will raise himself up. And then he later confirms that in John 10, when he says to them, nobody can take away my life. I alone lay down my life, and I alone can raise it up again. So who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in the resurrection of Christ, his resurrection power. And lastly, let's look at his saving power. It's a familiar verse you all know, Romans 1, verses 15 through 16. Romans 1, verses 16 through 15 through 16. Paul says this, he says, I am so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, the word of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word power, as you know, is the word dynamis. It literally means the potency to exert force. It is explosive power. The very gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to save people. His creation power, his sustaining healing power, his resurrection power, his saving power, his divine power is at work, has granted to you everything you need. Has granted. That's the verb of this, this passage. In fact, all of the verbs in these two verses are all in the past tense. They've already taken place. It is what Christ has already done. It is not is Granted, It is has been granted, past tense. That word granted is the idea of gift. When I was in college, I learned I needed money. And so I got loans and I got grants. My sophomore year, I learned, go for the grants, forget the loans. Why? Because grants are a gift. That's what they mean. It means you don't have to pay them back. Loans, they're going to want that back with interest. Right? In the Latin version of the New Testament, the word that's used for granted is gratis, where we use the word grace, a gift. It's where the word gratuity comes from, a tip at a restaurant. I had a coworker, her dad would do this. I'm not recommending you do this. He would call the server over at one point. Wouldn't he make, he'd just do this, right? Come here, come here. Son, uh, I believe tips need to be earned, and at this point in the meal, you owe me money. I know, right? You could see. Yeah, yeah. Here's the problem. He didn't understand what gratuity meant. 
Gratuity does not need to be earned. Gratuity is a gift. You want to shock your server the next time you go out to eat? When they say, hello, I'm going to be your server for today. Say, thank you so much. Here, We're going to put our tip right now on the table. It is yours. It is a gift. It is grace. No matter what you do or what you don't do, that is yours. Thank you. And you can share a gospel track with them at the end. I'm sure they'll read it. That is what is granted here. It has already been given to you. It says to us. Who is the us? Stephen showed us who the us was. Look back in First Peter or Second Peter, chapter one, verse two. I'm sorry, verse one. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, Chris introduced it. That that's us. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing based on what? By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. If that is true of you, all this is true of you. It has already been granted to you. If it is not true of you, it can be today. This can be all yours today because of the work that Christ has already done. Why would you not come to him? He's already done the work for you. It has been granted to us. What has he granted to us? All things. All things. And the Greek pas literally means everything lacking, nothing complete. And most people want to stop here. Right? That the power of God has granted to me everything. Does God give us everything? No way. And praise God he doesn't. Does he give me everything I deserve? I hope not. But he gives us everything what? Pertaining to, that's what it says next, pertaining to, having to do with what? Life. Okay, well, there you go. Everything pertaining to life. We need food, we need drink, we need clothing, and we need like 50,000 square footage. The problem with that understanding of life is that most believers today in 2023 don't have food or water or clothing, or shelter. Why is this not true for them, if that's what it means? It can't be because they don't have enough faith. Why? Because it was granted to them the moment that they obtained their faith. It has already been granted to them. They don't have to do something to get it. So this must mean something different than what we tend to make it think, make it mean. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life. And that there are two words in the Greek used for life. One is bios. Sounds like biology. Right? The physical life. This. Now, the life that I'm living. Breathing. I need food. I need calories. I need protein. I need sustenance. I need shelter. That's bios. That's not the word used here. It's the word zoe. It is referring to what we sang about. Life everlasting with him. That life, the spiritual life with Christ, everything has already been provided for. You have nothing to worry about. Your worrying will not add anything to that. It's already been provided. Praise God that your life after is completely supplied. But then there's this little word, and. And this is not and as in redundant, like, like uh, he is intelligent and smart. What's well, kind of saying the same thing? She is, she is strong and mighty. It, it says the same thing. That's a redundant and. This and is not here. This and is like those commercials where it was, but wait, 
there's more. That's this and. Because each of these, there's three of these ands in this passage. And every time the second thing builds upon the first thing. It's, it's this, but there's more. He's, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Godliness. This is what Paul Tripp says, this part gets him up in the morning. And I would say, amen. Not only does it get you up, it is there waiting for you before your feet even hit the floor. That everything you need for that day's worth of godliness has already been provided. Christ has already given you everything you need to live a godly life that day. To resist temptation, to say no to that besetting sin. It has already been given, praise God. But also to live in a way that is gracious. To live in a way that reflects Christ's love to a lost and dying world. We already have that every day. We can't outspend it. And the next day, it's provided again. And again, all the godliness you need for each day is there. But His divine power has already provided it. The question is, are we tapping into it? Are we making use of His great, omnipotent, divine power? Point number two is His calling. This is his effectual, irresistible calling. You see that in the, in the rest of the verse of part three. It is all of this that has been granted to us is through or by, because of, the way of, a, the knowledge of him who called us. It is through what? Through the knowledge. Stephen pointed on this and touched on this last week. This word knowledge, Peter uses 14 times. It is the word epigenosis in this letter. Fourteen times, it's either knowledge or know, to know something. And, and it is not just information. We have enough information. If, if, if you need information, if you want to know how to ride a bike, just go, go to uh, wikihow.com slash ride-a-bicycle. And in 17 steps, you can know how to ride a bicycle. And you don't have to put on a big helmet. And you don't have to lose seven layers of skin on your knees. And you don't have to watch your kids cry as they hit the back of a car or a fire hydrant or a tree. They will know after reading those 17 steps how to ride a bicycle. But if you want an epigenosis, if you want to experience, personally experience intimate knowledge with how to ride a bicycle, you're going to have to get some skin in the game. Literally. And that is the word that is used here. In the Hebrew translation of the New Testament is the word yada. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. It is the word that is used that a husband would go in and know his wife. Not just, well, there you are, hon. I know her. No, it would be to be joined with her in an intimate way and know her personally. That is how it is used in the Old Testament. But it is used more times... For every time it is used of a husband and wife, it is used more times of God and his relationship with us. Be still and know. Intimately know. Be known and be deeply respected that I am God. And that is where it says, it is through this knowledge that we have, this epigenosis of what? Of him. Again, the him is Jesus Christ. If we don't know the right Jesus, we don't have this. It has to be the Jesus of the Bible. 
It can't be just any Jesus will do. It has to be who he said he was. And who is he? He is the one who called us. Again, past tense. The verb is in the past tense. It is actually referred to as an aorist tense. It means something happened once, and the reality of that is still going on today. He called us by what? Some translations say to or by his own glory and excellence. Which is it? Is it to or by? He called us to his own glory and excellence or by his own glory and excellence? The answer is yes. It is both. He called us by his own glory or to his own glory. Isaiah 42, 8. Uh, that's not in your handout or on the screen. It's a freebie. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to idols. God says, I will not give my glory to anyone. And yet here he says, I call you to it. I'm not going to give it. I'm going to call you to it. Come and share in my glory. He is willing to have all come to him and share to and or by his glory. And, but wait, there's more, his excellence. His excellence what does that mean? I can cook, but I'm not an excellent cook. Right? I can get the meal done, and it, you, it's edible. It is, it is edible. But an excellent meal, you've had an excellent meal. You know what an excellent meal is. Everything about it, the collection of all, not just the ingredients, not just in how it was cooked, but even to have a way of preparing it in such a way, it just looks good on the plate. That is an excellent meal, because the word excellent actually means that is the sum of all desirable characteristic qualities. Patrick Fata is an excellent cook. I've eaten his truffles. I just, I just yum with every bite. They're excellent, Patrick. That is what it means. He calls us to the collection, the sum of all that he is. That is his calling. We're going to look at three things about his calling. We're going to see that his calling gives us the ability to hear. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 24 through 29. He calls us in such a way that we have the ability to actually hear his voice. Look at what it says in John chapter 10, verses 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, there you go. Just, just... He could say, right, just tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, in reference, I told you plainly. But you do not believe. Not only did I tell you, but the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not part of my flock. Here it is. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus calls in such a way that all his sheep hear his voice. Let's look at the, not only he calls us that we're able to hear, but he also calls us that we're able to respond. And we see that in Acts chapter 13. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Over to the right. It's going to be verses 47 through 48. It says, 
For so the Lord has commanded us. Who's the us? If you look just above, it says, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. So this is Paul and Barnabas speaking. The Lord spoke to us and commanded us saying this, I have made you a light, a spiritual light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Why? Next verse. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they rejoice? Because not only did they have the ability to hear, they had the ability to respond to that message which had been given. The gospel call. Christ calls in such a way that we can hear him and we can respond. And then third, we have the ability to confirm that calling. Turn back to our passage in Second Peter chapter 1. It's going to be preached in, in a, a couple of messages. But First Peter chapter 1, look at verses 9 and 10. It says this, it says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. doesn't mean he is blind, but it means he can't even see to the end of the hood of the car that legally you're blind. They're going to require that you wear glasses. He is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was, past tense, cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. This is similar to where Paul exhorted us to Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you. We can confirm our calling because we have been cleansed from our former sins. That's how we confirm our calling. That, that's the way I was, but I'm not that way anymore by God's grace. I am confirming that he has called me out of darkness into light. And so there we see that his calling, the power of his calling... Turn over. Point number three. We're going to see his promises, in, starting in verse four. So by which, what is the by which? As a result of Jesus is calling us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. If Christ has saved you and called you in such a way that you could not resist. It was his irresistible calling. Then he has, then also has granted, past tense, his precious and very great promises. If he has called you, he has promises for you. Someone has counted them. There are 30,000 promises of God. I haven't counted them. If you want to do that, go ahead and let me know how close they got. 30,000 promises of God. How many do we need? How about one? I will never leave you or forsake you. Sometimes we feel like he's not near, but he has never gone back on that promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is just one of the 30,000 promises of God. So that what through them, them again, uh, I'm sorry, uh, he has granted to us, us, those who have already obtained this faith, standing in Christ's righteousness, his, that is God, Jesus, the Lord and Savior, his what? His, promise, his promises. But they are described as two things, precious, first, precious. As soon as I hear that word, I couldn't hear, help but think of Gollum. 
my precious, right? It's hard not to. And what was it made of? It was made of gold. And that's actually the idea here in the Greek word is gold or silver or something rare. God's rare promises in the sense that he doesn't give them to anybody. These he gives to his children, to his kids, his precious, valuable, and what? It's and something else. And very great. This word, very great, is the word we get magistry, right? Majestic. It is beyond comparison. It is as best as these promises can get. Let's look at just three of those promises. His unfailing promises to Israel. We're going to have to go all the way back to the left side of the book, Joshua. It's after the first five books of the Pentateuch. I usually remember it, Joshua judges Ruth. It's not good to judge Ruth, Joshua, but that's what he does. It's in that order. Joshua judges and then Ruth. Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 through 45. And listen to what God has promised. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave, granted, to Israel all the land that he swore to give. Swore to give is another way of saying promised to their fathers. And, he, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave, granted them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies will withstand them, for the Lord has given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all of the good promises, or in Second Peter 1.4, all of the very great promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Has God kept his promises? Absolutely. Let's look at our promise guaranteed. Turn back to New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 22, it says in 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In whom? In Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen. Amen? Amen! To God for His glory, that it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, has anointed, set us apart, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit as our guarantee. What would it take for God not to keep His promise for you? Is that He would have to rip the Holy Spirit away, which has been given as your guarantee. And He has never done that. That that word seal, as a seal, is the word for engagement ring. And in the Jewish culture, it took a bill of divorce just to get out of an engagement. How much more God who has given the Holy Spirit as your engagement ring, is he going to keep all of his promises to you? He has already done it. And lastly, let's look at our promised inheritance. Turn to Ephesians 1, 3-14. This is what Pastor Slate read earlier. Ephesians 1. I'm not going to read that, and that's why I had Jeremy read it, because there's a lot there. But just scan through Ephesians 1, chapter 3 through 14, and look at the words used for our inheritance. 
blessed, blessing. This was in the Old Testament when the, the patriarch would lay his hands on the children and describe his blessing, their inheritance to them. That he chose us in him. He predestined us for adoption. That is our, our, what we have received to the praise and glory of his grace. Look at verse uh, 8, which he has lavished. Just before that, the end of verse 7, riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us according to his purpose in verse 9. We're going to get to that next, the purpose of Christ, which he has set forth in Christ as, as the plan for the fulfillment of time to unite, unite all things in him. We're going to see that as part of his purpose. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We have already obtained an inheritance. Well, I don't have it. No, but it's guaranteed. It is waiting for you, and there is no death tax in heaven. Praise God. Hallelujah. It is going to be waiting in full for you. That inheritance which we have obtained, since we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Our inheritance has been sealed and promised by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory, amen. That is what we have received because of his promises. His precious and very great promises. And fourth and last point is his ultimate and eternal purpose. So that... Back in in Second Peter chapter one, beginning of verse uh, middle of verse four, says, "So that through them, so that for this reason, this is the intent. All of this is leading up to right here. For this reason, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through them, through what? Through the promises that God has given you." You may become partakers. You. He, he changed it. He was saying us. But right now, Peter wants it to be personal. You personally may obtain. He doesn't want to just think of this as a generic, general, all of us. It's each and every one of you who are in Christ so that you may obtain. I learned this the hard way when I was in grade school. The difference between can and may. When I asked, can I go to the bathroom? Yes, you can, but you may not. So can I, can I go to the bathroom? Yes, you can, but you may not. Why would a teacher do that to a child? I know you want to teach English and grammar, but help them out. Do it afterwards. What, what's the difference? Can. Can is, is capability, right? Yes, yes, Rob, you are capable of going. But you may not, I've, you've not asked for permission. May is the idea of you've been granted permission. What? That you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers is the Greek word quanania, The same one that we share in like-mindedness. That we share, it doesn't mean we have one brain. Sometimes it means that there's one brain between us. But it means we share a unity, right? There is a, a unity in 
the fellowship, the quantania that we share, that we become partakers of what? Of his divine nature. This was a, a, a Hellenistic term that Peter knew his audience could identify with. It, it is not that we become God. Nature is not being. That we become partakers of his divine nature. This is the idea of identity. We, we know this in, in even Hamilton County right, or, or in Indi- Chief's Nation. Right? That is an identity that a certain group of people, you say that and, and they start just tomahawking or doing something. I don't know what they do. Right? That is, they, they become partakers of something, unity of something, that they all can identify with. We're, we're Hoosiers, apparently. I don't know what a Hoosier is, but we're it. Because we live in Indiana. We partake, we share in that identity. It's part of who we are. What is our identity? Our identity is of His divine nature. We're called Christians. It means, it was a derogatory term that meant little Christ. Look, look, there goes another one. A little Christ. Right? And, and that's what it meant that they looked like. People saw them and, and they saw Jesus. And so that's what we have become partakers of His divine natures. Having what? When did we become partakers of His divine nature? When we escaped. When did we escape? Look at Romans 8.28. You know this passage. It's a familiar passage. Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who have been called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What is the thing about all those verbs? They're in the past tense. Glorified. Now, you look good, but you don't look that good. Not right now. Or you don't look glorified. We, we have not yet been glorified. We have not yet received our glorified bodies. But it is as good as done. Just as much as your justification, just as much as your calling, just as much as your being predetermined is already done. That is his... His point of when we escaped, what? What is this idea? This word escaped is the idea of to run, to bolt. It was when Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife that he bolted out of there and left part of his, his robe in her hand. When did we do that? When we turned away from our sin and bolted from it and turned and ran to Christ. That's when we obtained all of this. We ran. We escaped from what? From the corruption of, that is in the world. This corruption we, we did in imperishable, is Christ's imperishable purpose. Look at 1 Peter, where we are in, in, in 2 Peter. Just go back a little bit in 1 Peter. We saw this in 1 Peter when we went through that book in, in chapter 1. Starting in just verse 18. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Knowing that you were, and listen to the words that show the contrast between imperishable and perishable. That we have actually, the purpose of Christ is that we would uh, obtain that which is imperishable. Knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, in verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, which was inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood. So the opposite of perishable is the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now jump to verse 22, having purified your souls. This is part of his purpose, that you would purify your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have, because you have been born again, what Christ has already done, that he has made you born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So his purpose is that we would escape, that we would have an imperishable purpose, and then lastly, that it would be an emancipating purpose. Back to Second Peter, and this is where we finish. Second Peter, looking at chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping. That's not describing you. He says you have already escaped, past tense. But there are those who are barely escaping from those who live in errors. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves. One of Christ's promises is that those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. You are free indeed, because Christ has set you free. But they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of what? Of corruption. For what over, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We have, one of the purposes of Christ, that becoming part of his divine nature, is that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world, this fallen humanity. It's the word cosmos. Because of what? Because of Sinful desire. And the key here is not the word desire. It is the word sinful. We all desire something. God created us to desire. The problem isn't desire. The problem is what we desire. And if it is anything more than Christ, that is an idol. Anything I desire more than Christ has become an idol. And he has set us free from that so that we would want him. More than anything. There is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, what does that mean for us today? Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Not will be. This is our identity. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What's our application? If you are a child of God, then live like who you are. Live live like it. You can. He has already provided you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. You get to live like who you are. Last verse, I promise. Turn to Luke. It says John on your outline. That is not an autocorrect. That is an error. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 31. This is at the end where he's talking about not to be anxious about anything. Remember I said for three people, those who who may feel like they need motivation because they're idle, who may feel like they need encouragement because they are faint-hearted. This speaks to you, the faint-hearted. It says in verse 31, Luke chapter 12, Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now jump down to verse 35. He then exhorts us, because of what Christ has done, he has given you the kingdom. So now, verse 35, so stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake and when he comes. Truly, I say to you, and I... I would not say this if it wasn't written in Scripture because it almost sounds blasphemous. And he will come to you. He will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. And he, the master, will come and serve them. In the end, Jesus serves us Remember one of the reasons about going to restaurants is the, to feel honored that someone would serve? If you are in Christ, at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the bridegroom serves his bride. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Peter said, No, Lord, it, may it not be. And he said, uh, If I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part with me. He said, Well, then, of course, Peter, well, then go ahead and wash all of me. And she said, It's enough for the feet, Peter. If we don't let him serve in this way, we will be served by a judge who will condemn us to hell. Because that is what we all deserve. But if we bolt from our sin, repent of our sin, and turn to him and trust in him alone for salvation, he serves us. Why? Would you choose the other when he is calling you now? Let me pray. Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have shown us in your word of all that you have done for your glory. And that you call us to be part of that, to share in that. That was all your work, not mine. And I thank you that you've done that. I I thank you for each person you've done that for today. For those whom you are doing that work right now, I pray, God, that you would help them to, to hear your voice, to respond to your voice, and to confirm the work that you are doing in their life. To the praise and glory and honor of the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.